Welcome back to FCC Online as we enter into week three of our study of the book of Exodus. My name is Ben James. I am the lead pastor here at First Church. Uh, we are really, really grateful that you are joining us here online today. We are going to be taking a look into Exodus chapter 2 today. And I'm going to title this message, From the Nile to Midian. Before I read this passage, one thing that I want to encourage you to do, and it's a little bit challenging, and I understand that, but I want us to approach this passage of Scripture today trying to convince ourselves that we don't know how this story ends. And I think that's just a good, uh, good piece of advice and a good direction in any of our Bible reading. Because it's a little bit difficult for us to think about what we're getting ready to read as brand new information. Because most likely, if you've been in church for some time, if this has been part of your background and your history, then you know at least the high points and kind of the end of some of these characters, the end of the story of these characters that we talk about frequently. Moses being one of those. But I want to challenge you. Kind of try to compartmentalize that. Try to divide that in your mind as you understanding and knowing the rest of this narrative, the, the, the end of this story. And try to put yourself in a place that you're consuming this information and it being brand new and you really not understanding what's getting ready to happen as this story goes along. I think I know that when I read a new book, I read it and consume it with this anticipation of how is this going to end? The, the whodunits. Okay, I'm trying to guess if it was this person or if it was this person or this is what happens or that's what happens. And we lose that, that concept. We lose that um, that when we're looking at Scripture sometimes, because if it's something that we're revisiting, then we already know the outcome. And sometimes we miss the weight, we miss the gravity of the stories or the lessons or the historical accounts that the author is intending. And that as they're writing, we kind of miss the nuances. We kind of miss the dynamics sometimes. Before I get into my message, though, I do want to have just a little bit of a moment of Bible trivia with you. So go ahead, put your thinking caps on, get your gospel track shoes on, and let's have a little bit of a quiz for you. So here it is. Who in Scripture had the best financial portfolio? Now, I'll give you a minute, and I'll repeat that. Who in Scripture had the best financial portfolio? The answer is Pharaoh's daughter. Yeah, right here out of Exodus chapter 2, what we're getting ready to cover, we see the individual in the entirety of the Bible who has the best financial portfolio. You want to know why I make that statement? Because she went down to the bank of the Nile and drew out a little profit. You're welcome. Let that little earworm bounce around in your head for a little bit. 
I mean, it's been a while since I told a really good quality dad joke in here. So with that, let's move into my message today. From the Nile to Midian. It's going to be in Exodus chapter 2, and we're going to be consuming the first 22 verses today. Before I read those, I want to tell you what we're going to cover today. We're going to break this up into three different sections. And we're going to see that in the first section, the theme of it is that God is sovereign. God is sovereign. And we'll look at that and let those, let those evidences play out that God is sovereign. He's just in control. Then the second one, we're going to kind of seemingly ask a little bit of a rhetorical question after I just told you who is in control, but we're going to look in this second section as to who is in control, who is in charge here. And then the third, we're going to look at God's providence. So these are going to be the first 22 verses in chapter 2. So go ahead, if you've not done so already, turn in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 2. Verse 1. Now a man from the house of Levi went and took his wife, a Levite woman. Stop. All right, I know I didn't cover 10 right there, but I'm going to pause just briefly, and I'm going to point something out to you. Later on in this study, I'm going to look back, and I'm going to go, Exodus chapter 2, verse 1 was a really big deal. It was a really critical part. It was a really important part of this Exodus story and the narrative of the book of Exodus in, in its sum total. Now, when I get there, you're not going to remember that I told you that this was going to be important. I realize that. But when we get there, I will still look back and go, I told you that this was going to be important, and I told you we were going to come back to it. But I digress. I just wanted to throw that little caveat in there, that at some point we will come back to this, and this verse 1 will be important. Now, let's read the entirety of at least the first 10 verses. Now a man from the house of Levi went and took his wife, a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son, and when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him three months. When she could hide him no longer, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes and daubed it with bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the riverbank, and his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river, while her young women walked beside the river. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant woman, and she took it. When she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the baby was crying. She took pity on him and said, This is one of the Hebrews' children. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Go. So the girl went and called the child's mother. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. When the child grew older, she brought him into Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses because, she said, I drew him out of the water. Now to set the backstory just a bit, what we covered last week, that was a dark time in Egypt. The Israelites were facing an incredible darkness, and we covered that in pretty good detail as well. They were facing persecution. They were facing slavery. They were facing genocide, and there's no other way to put it. Things had not gotten better at this point, okay? So don't detach the narrative here. Don't detach the story because 
things are not great right here. Okay, we're still in massive darkness. Matter of fact, it may be a little bit more so if we can imagine that because the last verse that we see in chapter 1 is that the entirety of the nation was now being instructed. It wasn't just the midwives to say, hey, if, they're, if the Hebrew children, if the, you know, if the Hebrews give birth to a male child, then you need to kill them. Let the daughters live, kill the males. This edict from Pharaoh goes beyond the midwives, and it goes to all the people, the entire nation. He says, it's your responsibility that if it is a Hebrew boy, cast it into the Nile. Get rid of it. So that's the scene that we see the birth of Moses, what he's born into. And I want us to look here at the sovereignty of God and how God's hand was truly on Moses. In this story, we see that his mother did her best. She hid him for three months. And it got to the place that she could no longer hide him. And she wound up doing what the edict was instructing her to do. Now, granted, she took a few extra steps than what were given an indication that any of the other mothers did. I mean, she made a little mini ark. She made this little floating basket to try to waterproof it as much as she could. She took it down to the Nile River and not just into the middle of the Nile. Now, I understand something. Uh, the Nile's really important. Okay, I mean, I know we'll get into this moment by moment by moment in this study, but if there's no Nile, there's no Egypt, period, because that's what sustained the nation itself. But instead of putting the baby, throwing the baby into the Nile or making a basket, putting it into the middle of the Nile, which rough estimate has about 6 million gallons of water that flows per second, Six million gallons per second. We're not talking about the little sandy here, folks. Okay, Massive, untamable, uncontrollable river. So this Levite woman, Moses' mother, puts him in this basket, instructs to be placed in one of the more calm places. She puts him in the reeds, okay, which is a calm little, little offshoot of this river. It's not in the current she tells his sister, watch over him, see what happens. Just so happens that this is also the place where Pharaoh's daughter comes to take a bath. So here we have Moses, this child that was born, that was commanded to be killed, to be thrown into the Nile. And when there's no possible hiding any longer, the mother actually places him in the Nile. So she is not defying the edict at this point but places him in a, in, in, a, in a location to where it's going to be a little bit of a more controlled environment and also a place where Pharaoh's daughter comes to bathe. Now, the, the hand of God that we see working here is incredible, okay? Because we see that Pharaoh's daughter sends a servant girl. They see her. Uh, she opens it up. It's a baby. It's a male baby. It's a Hebrew baby. It's crying, which you would imagine I would be crying. 44 years old. You put me in that situation, I'm crying too. May even need a diaper change. Anyhow, I digress. It says that she was moved with compassion for him, that she took pity on him. So let's talk about Pharaoh, genocidal maniac, who had zero issues sleeping, resting, living his life, going to bed at night with ordering all of the Hebrew young men to be killed. But then you have an apple that fell way away from the tree here. And his daughter 
who looked at the child with compassion and had pity on him. Then actually sends the child back to be nursed by who? His mom. So she gets to raise him up to a certain point. Nonetheless, when she takes him back to Pharaoh's daughter, she gro- he grows up in Pharaoh's house, and he is a prince of Egypt. They give him the name Moses because she drew him out of the water. Now, we talked last week about how important it was not to whitewash Scripture, not to, white, not to sanitize and, and not look at different variables different realities in Scripture, and I don't want us to do that here either. There arises a question, and if you've not already thought it, you, it'll make sense to you whenever I say this. We talked about the reality last week that God still had a plan working behind the scenes, but that didn't take away from the fact that babies were still being killed. Women were being raped. They were being used in sex trafficking, in forced prostitution, Uh, There was slavery and mistreatment. There was dehumanization happening. All of this stuff, true, even though God's plan's working in the background. So with Moses, I think the question kind of has to be asked of, why Moses? Why Moses? Because even though Moses was saved, there was still other Hebrew babies that were being that, that were being killed, that were being cast into the Nile. Whether the mothers were doing it willingly, whether the mothers were putting up resistance and probably paid with that for their life and the husband's wife and the father's life and everybody, you know, is, if they're giving resistance, then the babies are being pulled away. I could just imagine. I, I don't know. I can't imagine. But just the, the horrific sounds of a child being ripped from her parents' arms to be cast into the Nile. This newborn, a newborn child, see, the darkness was not lifting. And yet we're pulling out this passage and saying that God is in control. Now I want to address this for just a little bit, and I want to be real with you. I think that we have to go deep and dig into a theological answer here as to why Moses and why God chose him and nobody else during this time. My answer to you is I don't know. I honestly don't know, and I'm not going to try to make up an answer like I do know. But what I can tell you is I want to talk to you older siblings. If you are an older sibling here, or if you're a parent and you've got multiple children, you see this dynamic happening here. If you ask any older sibling, who's smarter, them or their younger sibling? What's the answer going to be? Right? It's going to be the older sibling's going to say, I'm smarter. And then if we ask them why, they may have a list of things, but I guarantee you that one of the things on the list, as far as a reason as to why I'm smarter than my sibling, is because I'm older, right? Parents, are you smarter than your children? Okay, wives, don't look that judgmentally at your husbands just now, okay? I know what just happened right there. Yeah, we're smarter than our kids, and it's not necessarily because we're more educated than they are. But in some ways, we're smarter than them. Why? Because we're older than them. Because we've got more life experience than them. So older siblings, if you just answered that question that you were smarter than your younger sibling, then I want you to answer the question, are your parents smarter than you are? That was a little dirty pool trick right there. I know, I, I roped you into that one. But there's something about age that brings about wisdom. 
there's something about experience that brings a level of understanding and lessons learned, school of hard knocks maybe, that brings this level of understanding that most of the time, the older you are, the wiser you are because you've gone through it, you've learned your lessons. So if we have a younger sibling who is not as smart, not as experienced, not as wise as their older sibling, then it makes sense that the older sibling is probably there because they're older. They're a little bit wiser. Maybe they've experienced it a little bit more. Same with parents. As to any of your children, you're probably a little bit smarter, a little bit wiser, more experienced. You've learned the lessons. So we see that experience does have something to do with wisdom and understanding what's going to happen in certain situations, like the old penny in the light socket type thing. You get a three-year-old, they're not going to understand what's about to happen. You get a 13-year-old who maybe did that when they were three or four years old, they're going to understand well what's happening there. The reason I'm using this example is because when we try to answer the question of why is all this happening, if God is in control, if God is sovereign, why Moses, why not the other children, why does he save some and not save all of them, I don't know. All I know is God's a whole lot older than I am. God has a level of wisdom that I will never have. He has a level of experience <laughs> that I will never have. And I think that that's one of the more challenging parts about our faith sometimes, is that it's faith for a reason, that we have to trust even when we don't understand. And we have to trust that God is sovereign and that all things are working together for his glory, for our good, and for his kingdom to be built and expanded upon. Now, whether we know the answer to that, whether we can give a justifiable reason, that remains unseen. And most of the time, I'm not smart enough to do that. But I do know that God is sovereign. God is in control. And God's plans will come about. Maybe not in the way that we want them to, but they will come about. So the first section, the first 10 verses, we see where God is sovereign where God is in control. Like I said, this next section, I'm going to ask and bring out a point, a little bit of a rhetorical question, actually, of who is in control, who's in charge. So let's start by reading verse 11, and let's look at this passage. One day, when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and looked on their burdens. And he saw an Egyptian beating Hebrew, one of his people. He looked this way and that, and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. When he went out the next day, behold, two Hebrews were struggling together. And he said to the man in the wrong, Why do you strike your companion? He answered, Who made you a prince and a judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, Surely the thing is known. And when Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian, and he sat down by a well. One of the things that we will learn about Moses through this study is that Moses cannot stomach injustice. He simply cannot stomach injustice. We're actually going to see it in the following passage once we get there as well, and then we're going to continue to see it throughout the rest of this narrative, throughout the rest of this story. But Moses sees someone being mistreated. He sees one of his people being mistreated again 
in a fashion that we probably can't even begin to imagine or fathom in this condition of slavery. And he goes and he stands up for him. Now, we don't know the playing out of this. We don't know all of the details and all the layers. That's not recorded for us. But what we know is that Moses stands up for this Hebrew that's being dehumanized, this Hebrew who's being mistreated and treated wrongfully and unjustly. And the Egyptian that's causing it, Moses winds up taking his life. And then Moses hides him just as any of us do most of the time when we do something wrong and we're afraid somebody's going to find out. So he's hoping that this situation is forgotten. As he looked around and says, he looked this way, looked that way, looked all around, didn't see anybody, and was hoping that he had gotten away with it. The following day, he sees two Hebrews in a disagreement, in an argument, in a fight, in a quarrel. We don't know exactly here. But he says to the man in the wrong, why are you fighting amongst yourself. This is your brother. This is your, this is your people. Why are you doing this? You've got enough oppression and, and, and enough uh, you know, torture and everything and resistance coming against you from the Egyptians. Why are you doing this to yourself? And the guy's like, hey, wh- who, who made you lord and prince over me? Who made you my judge? Are you going to kill me like you did the Egyptian yesterday? And Moses, now the secret's out. Somebody did know. And he was afraid that it was going to get back to Pharaoh. And it did. And Pharaoh, Pharaoh, the king, ordered for Moses to be dealt with. At that point, Moses flees to Midian. Now here's why I'm labeling this section, who's in control. It's kind of why I'm asking this rhetorical question after just answering it, who is in control in verses 1 through 10. See, Moses had a fantastic cause here. And he has a passion to see injustice be righted. He, he, he has this cause that he's very passionate about and that he pursues. And it's a good cause. It's a godly cause. It's a righteous cause. It is the right cause. But Moses goes about it the wrong way. We see Moses taking things into his own hands. The hand-picked deliverer of the nation of Israel, the Hebrew Messiah, the sent one as we're going to find out here in the next couple chapters, is still fighting this tendency that you and I fight today, which is to take matters into our own hands, to grow impatient in our, un- in our not understanding, as we talk about. We don't know why these things happen. We don't understand truly the sovereignty of God. And we get impetuous and we grow impatient and we tend to take things in our own hands. What we see from Moses here. Moses is doing the right thing, but he's doing it the wrong way. He has the right motives, but the execution is from the flesh, not by being led from the Spirit of God. We see a similar thing or a similar situation and opportunity happening in the Gospel of Matthew. When Jesus is being tempted by the devil, the last of the three temptations that we see is that he takes Jesus, Satan leads Jesus onto a mountain where he can see over a vast range of the earth. And he says, if you will only bow down and worship me, all of the kingdoms of this world shall be yours. Now understand something. Reclaiming the king's domain, the kingdom of God, was one of Jesus' primary purposes here. One of the things that Adam and Eve gave away 
in their fall into sin, Jesus, that was his purpose, to reclaim the domain of the king, to reclaim the kingdom. Only in this instance, Jesus had the opportunity to take an easy way, to take matters into his own hands and say, okay, I know the other option is death. I know the other option is a cruel punishment and a death agonizingly on a cross. This looks much better to me. You see, Jesus had the opportunity to do the right thing, but do it in the wrong way. And Jesus cast Satan out by the word. But what we see with Moses is that Moses takes matters into his own hands and does the right thing, but he does it the wrong way. Now let's look at God's providence. This is going to be the third section in this passage. And this should encourage all of us because it's going to show us how God still provides for us, how God still sustains us, even when we try to take matters into our own hands. So let's look at the rest of this passage. Verse 16. Now the priest of Midian had seven daughters, and they came and drew water and filled the troughs to, to water their father's flock. The shepherds came and drove them away, but Moses stood up and saved them and watered their flock. When they came home to their father, Ruel, he said, How is it that you have come home so soon today? They said, An Egyptian delivered us out of the hand of the shepherds and even drew water for us and watered the flock. He said to his daughters, Then where is he? Have you left this man? Call him that he may eat bread. And Moses was content to dwell with the man. And he gave Moses his daughter Zipporah. She gave birth to a son, and he called his name Gershon. For he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. Think about this story for just a minute. What did we just talk about? One of the passions of Moses is that he could not tolerate injustice. So he's sitting there next to a well. Daughters come to draw water. Other shepherds come, begin to run them off, begin to bully them, begin to treat them, unfortunately, as women were typically treated as second class, maybe maybe even below that in, in this time. And Moses stands up for them. Now we're talking about Moses standing up to shepherds here. Shepherds were a hardy lot. We can say that. They, they were not soft. They were not pushovers. These dudes took care of lions. They took care of bears. They took care of threats to their flock. They weren't pushovers. But it says that Moses stood up to them and deterred them and basically fought them back so that the women, you know, bullies don't like to be bullied, so that the women could draw water. He was righting a wrong here. He was seeing injustice and he was doing something about it. The daughters go home. The dad's like, hey, how are, how are you back so soon? This never happened. You're, you're ahead of schedule here. What's going on? And it's like this Egyptian dude, man, he fought these shepherds back. He pushed them back. We got our water. It was great. <laughs> the dad was like, where is he? Bring a guy like that home. This dude's a keeper. Bring him back. Let's feed him. And that's what happens. He brings him in, and Moses is content within the land of Midian and in this house and actually Mary's Zipporah has a son, 
and his name is Gershom, and he's because he has been a sojourner. He's been an alien in a foreign land. Moses is entering into a personal wilderness experience here. He's grown up in the palace. He's grown up in the palace as royalty. Messes up, flees, and he is getting ready to enter in to a personal wilderness that lasts decades. But the whole time, God provided for him. God sustained for him. God is in control, and God will provide for us. God will sustain us, even when we tend to get in the way. So today, if I'm looking at the challenge for us in this passage, to look and say, how have we known that God is sovereign in our life? It's a pretty broad brush application. I think that all of us could look back at a time and see where the odds were completely stacked against us, that we were in a pretty dark situation, in a situation where it didn't look like we had any hope. Now, granted, I don't think that any of us have been placed in a very bad boat, in a very weak basket in the middle of the Nile River. But we have been in situations where stability, where health, where finances, where relationships, where all of that was up in question. Everything was up in the air. And maybe, maybe it just didn't even seem like it was up in the air anymore. Maybe it, everything had come crashing down around us. And we can look back and we can see where God was in control in that situation. We may not have been able to see it as we were going through it, but we can look back and we've got a testimony of how God was in control. I think all of us can look at his provision. I think the way that he sustains us, I think that we can look at so many times in our lives to where if it were not for God, then we wouldn't have been able to make it through there. He was the one that had us where we were, and he had us, was taking care of us, he was providing for us, he was sustaining us. That's a pretty broad brush application too. What I want to challenge us with this morning is a question from that middle section of Scripture. Who is in control? And I want you to take a moment. And what we're going to do is I'm getting ready to wrap this up, and we're still going to have sermon considerations at the end of it, but I want you to primarily focus on this question. In what area or areas of your life are you taking on the role of God as opposed to trusting God? In what area or areas in your life, in your family, in your work, in your job, in your community, in your finances, in your relationships, in your health, in anything. What areas are you trying to be God and take matters into your own hands, even if it's a just cause, even if it's a right and righteous motive? Where are you trying to be God as opposed to simply trusting God? We see that in the life of Moses. We see that in the way that he took matters into his own hands in verses 11 through 15. Now, we may not be taking the life of someone, and we may not have to physically flee from a physical location, but I think that I can speak for myself that far too often I have taken on the role of God and tried to handle things myself instead of simply trusting God in the process, even when it didn't make sense, even when it was dark, even when I didn't have an answer. Our tendency is to try to force God's hand and to play that role 
and to try to be God in that situation and make things happen instead of trusting him. Thank you for joining us again today here at FCC Online. Again, hang around for the sermon considerations. We would love to hear from you. Reach out to us. Let us know that you're watching this. If you've got questions about this, or if you'd just like for prayer or just to talk, please reach out to us. We hope you have a great week.